Welcome to the Mental Health in Minnesota podcast produced by NAMI Minnesota. This episode was created by NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board, a space for young people of color interested in expanding the dialogues around mental health and wellness. Hello, welcome to today's episode from NAMI Minnesota. My name is Kabao Yang, she, her pronouns, and I have the honor of being in the virtual presence of two of the Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board members, Chanel and Reem. Thank you both for being here. Before we go into our conversation today, I'd love for us to actually introduce ourselves first. Whatever you feel is most appropriate for this context, don't feel like you have to share everything about yourselves. The listeners will get to know you better throughout this episode as you share your experiences and stories. And so Reem, I'll have you start us off, Chanel, and then I'll end us off. So my name is Reem. I use she, her pronouns. I am finishing up my last year of medical school, hoping to do work in the mental health, community health, um, and social equity space when I graduate. And I've been on the Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board for a couple of years now. Um, and I'm just really excited to be continuing the podcast. Hi, my name is Chanel, pronouns she, her. I graduated from WashU in December of 2020 with a degree in um, cognitive psychology and global health and the environment. And I am currently an associate buyer at Target. <laughs> and I've been on the board for the same amount of time as Reem. So like maybe yeah, two years now. Um, yeah. Yay, thank you for your introductions. Um, my name is Cabal. I work at NAMI Minnesota as the Multicultural Program Coordinator. I just came to this position about three to four months ago. So I'm really new to NAMI, very new to the advisory board. I came here as a public school teacher um, in St. Paul for about three years. And so I'm moving out of education to be in the nonprofit sector. And it's been really eye-opening. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're serving the community and serving our young people. So it, you know, very much aligns with my passions. Um, so Reem, if you want to go ahead and get us started and then, you know, just let the conversation just be authentic and organic. Yeah. So for today's episode, I really wanted to focus on joy. And maybe it's because it's something that I've been like struggling to channel for the last couple of weeks. Um but maybe it's also because my work has a giant like joy is resistance and rest is resistance sign that I have to walk by every day to get to work. And uh, it was just something on my mind. So I really wanted to focus on joy and individual and community healing, and then sort of a separate question of joy and resistance and how we see those things. And so I just wanted to start off with a very broad question of asking folks what they viewed as being the role of joy in community and individual healing. To what extent is community healing separate from individual healing? Um, and yeah, what role does joy play in those things? I think those are both really interesting concepts. Um, for me, I really see, you know, joy in community as basically synonymous to joy as an individual for me. I just feel like if my, you know, if the folks who are in my community, whether it's like kin or friends, my neighbors, whoever, if I feel like they're really thriving and doing well and 
um, kind of emitting that joy, then it kind of, you know, I kind of absorb that as well. Um, and so I really see them as similar. I don't know if I would say that they're the exact same, um, but I think I get a lot of joy when I see other folks enjoy, you know, like just those emotions are kind of contagious in that way. Um, so that's kind of how I see joy and how that works as an individual and as a, um, in a community. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think obviously, you know, joy can be contagious um, in a community. And I think that occurs both indirectly and also directly in terms of the way that joy impacts how you show up in a space and the habits that you are modeling and how healthy they are and the emotions that you're able to regulate like in your conversations with others and the way that you treat other people and the way that you encourage positive behaviors and others and then that in and of itself is infectious right like you know especially if there are members of your community that look up to you or that you look up to and you're feeling joyful and you're taking care of yourself like that is the message that you are sharing not even intentionally, but just by being like your most, most authentic, joyful self in a setting like that, like you are promoting that behavior and encouraging it in others and vice versa. They can also encourage it in you. So there was something that you both sort of implied that I wanted to come back to. And it's sort of the idea of, um, what it looks like to share spaces with people in your community and the ways that that experience itself brings joy and in return can receive joy. And one of the questions that I have sort of from like the multicultural BIPOC young adult perspective is what does that sort of community joy look like when you are in a minoritized community where the sense of community is just sort of lacking. And does there have to be a strong sense of community in order for there to be individual joy or even in order for there to be community joy? If, for example, I know in like most of my spaces, I'm usually the only person of color around and it can be hard to feel community and it can be hard to channel community joy in those spaces. Um, what does it look like to sort of carry community joy with you as multicultural young adults? I think there's definitely something to be said for kind of like really elevating what you said at the end of that, which is carrying your community with you. And, you know, there are a lot of times where I walk into a room, especially, you know, being in like academia and now like in corporate America, like where I would enter a classroom or a meeting and like I am the only brown person there. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't necessarily like carry the learnings from my community or my culture with me. And in turn, that I can't share that, right? Like with my friends, with my coworkers, with my peers and other communities that I hold space in that are unrelated maybe to my cultural identity. Um, and I think in the United States specifically, like I think, you know, there are a lot of cultural things that I would say are more associated with people who are not people of color that we just kind of accept as being normalized in the everyday space and like being something that anyone can partake in at any time. And it's like completely acceptable and not weird to see at all. And I think something that's really nice that is happening more and more in recent years is as a person of color, it is also acceptable to bring like aspects of your culture and your community into any space and let it be normalized and let it be something that like 
you can share at will and not have to, you know, like hide it or feel uncomfortable about it. I think like even just little things, right? Like I think food is a huge one, how there are certain foods that we just accept as being part of Western culture. And it's not weird if you're eating a pizza, nobody's going to comment on that. But if you bring a cultural dish, like from, you know, like my little sister's Liberian, right? And then I think there was a time and unfortunately it still happens in places, right? But like food is a huge source of joy. And a little kid brings in potato greens and rice and everyone's like, ew, what is that? Like, that looks nasty. That looks slimy. And that's a huge joy killer to have something that is this huge part of who you are and your culture and your community and have everyone just kind of like ragging on it. But I definitely feel like the direction that the world is moving in is one in which like you can not only bring that in, but people will approach it with like kindness and curiosity and maybe they want to try it too. And like, that is an example of a way that you can bring your community with you and that little piece of joy and that little piece of home and share it with the greater cultures at large. <laughs> mm, I love that so much, Chanel. Um, yes, I mean, immediately as I thought about community and joy, you know, exactly like what Chanel said, it's like food, like instantly, you know, it's not even just, um, it's not even necessarily even like making food with, you know, with your friends or your family or your loved ones, but it's also like just asking like, have you eaten yet? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just that kind of like bridge builder of like, have you taken care of yourself? Have you nourished your body? Have you eaten yet? You know, and that, that right there, I think is just a great example of like community in, in words, you know, um, of just, I care for you and I want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Um, and then I also see it a lot through, you know, dance as well, um, of just moving your body. I think there's something that is really grounding, something that's really, um, it's a physical way to show that you have people who care for you and that you care for others. You know, when I think about um, dancing with Hmong folks, um, there's no such thing as like, even like a couple dance. All of your dancing happens in groups. Um, and so like, there's like, you know, you don't really have solo dancing. You don't really have couple dancing. You have like, you know, groups of six people or 10 people or whatever. Um, and so everything is really, you know, with the community, really with folks that you're not even like, is your partner or that you do by yourself. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just really think about dance and foods and just laughter. I think humor is a big part of just community, um, of just being able to laugh together about things. But it's something that if you, if someone else from a cultural background that isn't yours, if they laugh at something, it feels off-putting because they don't have that identity or, or lived experience that you do, right? So sometimes I think like, oh, well, you can't say that because you don't actually know what it feels like. You know, you can't joke about that because, you know, I get to joke about that, you know, <laughs> because it's my lived experience, you know? So I think about that as well of like, that's what community looks like when you're able to have these kind of inside jokes because like only you get it, you know? I really liked what you said about, um, the, the ways in which people take care of each other in your example, particularly through food. I just remember you thinking you, you brought up the question, have you eaten yet? Or have you nourished your body? And just immediately I was like transported back to any like Arab or Muslim gathering that I ever went to where that was like the first question that was ever asked, or the assumption was that that gathering was going to serve a purpose of nourishing your body um, and taking care of you. And one of the, <clears throat> like the sort of transition questions that I wanted to talk about was um, 
this question of joy as resistance, which I feel like has started to enter more mainstream conversations recently. Um, but I also wanted to tie resistance back to joy and resistance back to healing. And I first want to start by talking about some of the ways in which I think joy can in and of itself be representative of a form of resistance. Um, and I've got a couple of ideas, but I also wanted to hear other people's ideas because I think that this is a topic that is so open to individuals bringing their lived experiences and their backgrounds. Um, and I'm sure that there are things that I haven't thought of that you guys have to offer. I mean, I would think it's kind of exactly what you said, right? Which is that particularly for communities of color, joy itself is an act of resistance. I think a lot of us can trace our very, like, not at all distant ancestry to people who, like, were constantly in survival mode and just focused on making it to the next day, right? And, like, trying to raise a family and you know, support their household and go to work, like in a world that really didn't want to see them be successful <laughs> like, and was actively working against them at all times. Right. So like just the ability to do something just for the sake of letting it make you happy is like, I think something that is a privilege that I have that like my grandmother wasn't necessarily afforded growing up and her mother definitely wasn't. And her mother before that absolutely was not. <laughs> so like, and like any time that like they or I could like steal those moments of joy in a world that didn't want to see us be joyful is in of itself an act of resistance and getting away with it makes me just a little bit more joyful. <laughs> it's like, ha ha ha, like you can't keep me down. Um, yeah. And I think that that is probably, I, you know, obviously can't speak for all people of color, but I think especially in the United States, I would imagine that that is a like pretty universal experience in a lot of communities of color. And I also think of that context as um, also being very true today that I think even in folks of color today, there is sort of an expectation of suffering. And that's not to to say that there isn't suffering and that's not to say that there aren't injustices that our communities are working to counteract or are working to change it's just to say that our existence does not have to be oppositional our existence does not have to be defined in opposition to structures of power our existence does not have to be defined relative to suffering or relative to injustice and in that case joy itself as we experience it today separate from our ancestors but also very much a a part of our ancestors joy today is in and of itself its own active resistance because we are able to like we're able to separate ourselves from this narrative that we must be suffering at all times in order to advocate for change um and i think joy also is a form of like rest and recuperation that allows for continued active efforts in making change that is sustainable and that can like continue to be driven without this sort of, um, without burnout, honestly. I just wanted to mention, you know, I think Chanel brought up this good point of like always kind of, there's kind of this culture of like always kind of like grinding, like you're always supposed to be productive um, and working and kind of showing off your success and accomplishments and, um, you know, just how productive you are, you know, but like, 
we owe ourselves and each other, you know, kind of this abundance of like reciprocity, you know, and like caring for each other um, and just compassion and kindness. Um, and then somehow I got warped into like, you know, trying to be the best at anything and everything and showing off what you have, um, you know, and really that deficit narrative, I think of a lot of folks of color, um, you know, I think that a lot of it is internalized of like, we hear that we've been, you know, you know, all of these brutalities have happened to us, right? Um, but then you don't really hear kind of the other side of it, of like, yes, but we're still here. Yes, but actually, you know, we've been able to thrive and adapt, you know, yes. And, you know, so it's, it's been this really one sided narrative. Um, and I kind of think about, you know, my family um, lived quite a few years in uh, refugee camps in Thailand before coming to the US and how, you know, even the refugee camps, they're able to celebrate their biggest holidays. You know, even when they really had no home, you know, they didn't have a home country, they didn't have homeland, um, no government to protect them. You know, it was really, you know, just the, you know, community members of Hmong folks and, you know, Thai folks, Lao folks. Um, but just that they were able to still celebrate like their biggest holidays, have these big feasts, have these big celebrations, um, even when the government didn't even want them there, you know. And so I just think about um, what that means in terms of like joy. But Chanel, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I actually really like what you said. And um, when you were talking about the camps, it reminded me how like soul food, which is, you know, obviously a huge thing in the black community. It, it literally has like origins, some of its origins, like in being given the scraps of like what plantation owners were eating for dinner and like turning this into this just like delicious like bad for your body good for your soul food <laughs> that like that now years and years and years later when we have access to other things we eat those meals at our gatherings and at our you know moments of celebration and at our holidays um and like that is just like I think a huge act of like joy and defiance right where it's like you're gonna give me the scraps off your table and I'm gonna turn it into a feast and not only that but I'm gonna share it with my community despite this time of scarcity because like that is how we survive is by like finding these moments of joy and sharing them with one another and giving each other a reason right to keep going um, so I actually like, I love that example that you mentioned, because I think that that's really powerful. And Chanel, I think I see that example that you gave of soul food made me think a lot of this idea of reclaiming things that in the past were, um, rooted in like very oppressive and brutalistic traditions and what that reclamation and the joy that comes with that reclamation also means as sort of like a as a as an act of freedom not just as an act of resistance but as an act of freedom and uh, um just sort of like the beauty in being able to take a, you you said this thing that like even when we have access to other things we still come back to this tradition and i think that is so that just speaks so much to the way that like reclaiming those things can be an act of not only resistance, but also freedom. And that joy itself is an act of both, that it is an act of resistance and in being an act of resistance is also, I think, an act of freedom. And Kabao, you also said something that I wanted to touch on, which was um, 
this idea that we tie so much of our value to our productivity, which I think is true broadly and will be true in any capitalist society. But I also wonder about the extent to which that is disproportionately true in certain communities. For example, communities that have been denied access to other spaces with sort of unconventional forms of, or unconventional measures of productivity and outcomes, where, for example, if folks of color were denied access to academia, then um, productivity was tied to a lot of like measurable outcomes like um, manufacturing, for example, or um, income or money made. And in that sense, I sort of wonder if that lens of productivity has done even more damage for communities of color who were denied access to other forms of these measures of productivity um, that rely more on like abstract spaces and abstract metrics of productivity. But that's just a theory that I had. And I don't know that there's any evidence for it. It's just a thought that I that I have that I felt I needed to voice. Hearing you say that actually reminds me of one of my like favorite trends that's happening on like TikTok and like social media right now. It's like people who are like, I want to be a soft girl or like, I want to be like, I want the soft lifestyle. Like I want to wake up with the dawn and like, just like, you know, frolic. (laughs) Um, And I especially love, like, I get this little thrill that just goes through my heart whenever I'm on Instagram or whatever. And I see like a young black person, like choosing to be like soft and like choosing, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, the other side of that, right? Like that is how my people survived this long is by being able to like, you know, really be tough. And, but it's like, you don't always want to be in survival mode and you don't always have to be anymore. And I don't have to be like the hardest worker in academia or otherwise. And like, I do think like to what you're saying, Reem, like there definitely is this mentality that's cultivated that like, your value is based on your productivity and your ability to work because that is like all my ancestors knew. And like, that is how we kind of like made it through in this world. And then, you know, at first it was maybe more like manual labor, but now that we have access to education as a community, like sometimes it goes really far in the other direction. And there's these really high expectations placed on like young black men and like black individuals, like just in general to, like get super, super educated and like take over the business sector or be a lawyer or be a doctor or be whatever. And it's like, well, like maybe I don't want to be that either. Like maybe I just want to be a soft girl. Like maybe I just want to work enough to do the things that I like to do, which have nothing to do with my job. And that's okay. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I think like that is something that as I've gotten older, I've come to realize like my ancestors marched in the streets. Yes. So that I could go to college if I wanted to, but like the latter part of that sentence is what's more important, right? It's if I wanted to, (laughs) like they fought so hard so that I could do the things that I want to do because that is my God-given right is to do what I want. Like everybody else does within reason. And I'm adopting that mentality more and more, and it's making me super happy. And I've decided I'm going to be a soft girl and nobody can stop me. And that's the end of my spiel. This soft girl lifestyle is amazing in part because we've advocated, well, maybe not even me, maybe I haven't done that much advocating, but my ancestors did a lot of advocating for me or 
other amazing folks of color in my spaces did a lot of advocating so that I could have the rights that I have to do these things that I can do because I want to do them, but I don't have to do them if I don't want to. And maybe one day I'll get to that point. Maybe I'll retire at age 35. I'm very unlikely that that's going to happen, but maybe. Yeah, Nissa yeah. Kalanick, congratulations. Yeah. I, I support your dreams. <laughs> I support your dreams. <laughs> Couldn't be me. And um, that in and of itself is just like one more act of resistance and one more act of joy of which folks of color are deprived. But yeah, the soft girl lifestyle is a thing that we now get to choose sometimes. And that is something, there's something really, really beautiful about that, even as it's like maybe being used ironically in some spaces. And I think that there's also something really beautiful about like reclaiming that freedom to express yourself how you want to, you know, even if it's kind of outside of the stereotype of, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, like I think about kind of like the myth of meritocracy, you know, of like you work hard so that, you know, the harder you work, the more you could make or the more you can X, Y, and Z, you know, and we know that that is completely false, you know, but we still see, you know, a lot of folks, especially a lot of folks of color, like, really, you know, like selling their bodies to capitalism. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I think about my parents who like, as soon as they moved to the US, you know, like they have only worked in assembly jobs and they still are working in assembly jobs. My dad is like two years from retirement, almost 60 and like still working 12 hour shifts doing medical assembly work. You know what I'm saying? And it's been 30 years since they've come to the US, you know, um, and like kind of on topic, but also not, we're planning this family trip to Cancun, Mexico. Okay, so, so it's the first trip my parents have ever taken besides when they first came here from the refugee camp 30, 35 years ago. So they never, they never got a passport. They've had eight beautiful children who have all grown up, traveled to other countries, but they never got to. You know, and I cannot wait to bring them to the resort, which is all inclusive, and to have folks actually ask them what they want because they've never had that in their lives. You know what I'm saying? Folks who actually cared to like bring you things and like, you know, and it seems so small and like you're paying for it, but you know what I'm saying? Like a win is a win, you know, like, um, so I just think about that, you know, of like you worked so hard and you didn't have to, you know? Um, so, but, but the joy that we get as children and as descendants to like heal that part of the adults and elders in our community who still don't get to rest. I really love the intergenerational lens on it because I remember last year we talked a lot about doing intergenerational work on our board. And part of that was sort of oppositional. Like it was this idea that um, intergenerational conversations around mental health and mental wellness often involve conflict, that there are sort of like different, that different generations hold oftentimes different ingrained ideas around mental health, mental illness, mental wellness, and what practices in those spaces look like. And so a lot of that work was rooted in healing, um, healing dissonance. And I really, really loved the lens that you just took of like healing, healing folks who provided us with so much of what we are grateful for today, who never got a chance to slow down and who deserved every bit of that chance. I really like the intergenerational lens focusing on um, healing that is not defined in opposition to one another. And that just really made 
me want to call my parents, honestly, who had very different lives, but also are immigrants and also spent decades of their lives working in an economy that prizes very little about them as people and very much about their output um, and who have been lucky enough to travel the world and who have been lucky enough to have the means to do so and who I think don't know what it would be like to slow down even if they were afforded the opportunity. And um, I'm really curious about what healing and reclamation of freedom looks like for that generation too. All these conversations reminds me like, so, you know, obviously Father's Day just passed for, you know, those who acknowledge that holiday. And I was talking with my coworkers and they were kind of talking about, you know, what they were doing with their dads, what they were getting their dads. And I was like, my dad is really hard to shop for because growing up, I would ask him what he wanted, like for Christmas or my birth or his birthday or whatever. And he would be like, well, I just want you to get good grades. Like every single holiday, like be like, I just want you to get good grades. I just want you to work hard in school. I just want you to stay out of trouble. I just want you to like, you know, be happy. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing those things, but like, what about you? But like, for so much of that, like every time he says, I just want you to do well in school, I just want you to be happy. Like, I just want you to take care of yourself. Like that like his joy is like watching me do those things. <laughs> like my family's joy is like watching me be successful and watching me see the world, even for people like my grandparents who don't really have the desire to do those things. <laughs> like, because like for some of my family members, like those are opportunities that were not really afforded to them growing up and were not afforded to their parents. And so like watching me kind of do my thing is like one of their great joys, which is like, I think especially when I was younger, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around because I would always be like, but what about you? Like, what do you want? Or like, don't you want to also like go see the world or go do this thing or go do whatever? Um, and like, it's just kind of interesting to sort of consider that how like you kind of forget that they might not even know how to rest <laughs> like, and like they might not know what they would do with that time if given the opportunity, but you can definitely see like how much your community and especially the older generations in your community, like will rally around you and support you and be so excited to see you like discover <laughs> how to rest and how to find joy and how to be, you know, of the world. Um, and I really like the point that you made about like how you get to bring that back around once you're older and be like, you can rest too. <laughs> like, um, I thought that was really fun. I remember having like the same conversations with my parents around like, what, what do you want for your birthday, for mother's day, for father's day? And the answer was always like, just, I want you to be successful. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't question this as a child, but I question this now, like, a, what does that mean? And they had a very limited model of what it looked like to be successful that I always sort of resented a little bit until I realized that for them, that model of success was a form of freedom. It was like a form of freedom from like being required to do all of the things that they were required to do just to continue to like exist and have the resources and the means to do so safely and peacefully. And in that sense, like 
it makes sense why seeing me get an A on a report card was a form of joy for my parents, because it was also a representation of like a way out of like struggle and hustle and grind that like my parents as two like young brown immigrant people had to like figure out how to navigate in order to establish any amount of like comfort in a lifestyle for themselves. And, um, as resentful as I was, as much as I wanted to just be able to bring home a B <laughs> and have that be okay, it makes so much sense to me now why there was so much that hinged on that and why why my parents saying that they just wanted me to bring home a 4.0 GPA made a lot of sense in terms of their joy, even though I now think of another TikTok, which is that sound that's like, please don't play with me right now, just answer the question. Every time I ask my parents what they want and they say, just, I just want you to be successful and happy. <laughs> like, please don't play with me right now. Just answer the question. <laughs> my mom always says like, when she, I hate it so much. I'm always like, mom, like, but she's always like, I want you to make me look like I didn't do anything with my life. And I'm like, well, first of all, like you're in your very early fifties. You have a lot of life left to do things with. But like, I get what she's saying at the end of the day, which is that if she, you know, grew up in the world that I grew up in, like how much changed in just a few short decades, right? Like the opportunities that she might've had and been able to take advantage of, like, she wants me to take advantage of those now. And like, she, you know, did the absolute best she could, which is a lot. My mom, like, she's just so much more successful than she gives herself credit for and like is so amazing in a world that is so unkind to black women. But mm -hmm. I like recognize that she's like, I like want you to go so much further because you have the ability to right? Like she did amazing the best she could with the resources she had, but like, I'm very blessed to have more resources. And I think in communities of color, that's like always the cycle, right? Is like every year it gets a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And with that comes this additional pressure to like go further just because you can, which again is why I like the softer lifestyle because I'm like, I mean, I just put, what if I don't want to go further this year? Well, we'll circle back to next year. This year, I'm just going to vibe. This makes me really, really want to call my parents. So... <laughs> I don't know how long we've been recording for, and I don't know how much, um, what, it, like, I don't know if folks have things that are left to be said still, um, and if there's space that we can make for those things. So I think we can, like, let this be an opportunity to, like, wrap up and say final thoughts on this topic. I feel like we've created an act of joy and resistance just in recording. I feel like this was like started out as like a little podcast episode about like joy and communities of color. And then it turned into like all the ways that our like parents and, you know, like grandparents and aunts and uncles and like elder guardians in our communities like cultivated an opportunity for us to like be joyful and, you know, just explore and get the most out of life. Um, which I actually really like. And I feel like it's so positive because I feel like a lot of times, like the conversation usually goes the other way. Right. And like, you know, generational trauma and that's real too. And that's like its own completely separate conversation. However, like I, 
saw an Instagram post the other day. Wow. I brought up social media a lot in this conversation. I promise I'm not on TikTok all day. I have a job guys, but I did see a post the other day that was like, remember just because your parents didn't break all the barriers of gender, like just because your parents didn't break all the generational traumas doesn't mean they didn't break any. And like, I really had to like sit and just like, think about that and let that sink in. And that's what this conversation is reminding me of, because I feel like we have so many conversations these days about like generational trauma in communities of color and like the things that we inherited. Um, But I think sometimes we have to remember like the resilience that we inherited and the joy that we were gifted. And I feel like this conversation has been a great celebration of that. So thank you, Reem, for guiding us to this like very positive and lovely topic. Yes, thank you so much, Reem, um, for just your creativity and just your ability to kind of navigate kind of all of the ways that our conversation was going. Um, but, you know, I when Ch- Chanel was kind of talking about, you know, your family, I just thought, you know, joy is intergenerational, joy is selfless. It's never about me, I, my, you know, it's always ours you know? Um, and so I just wanted to end on that note, but yeah, I mean, this was amazing. Reem, if you want to close us out, that would be great with just kind of your last thoughts. Um, and then before we head into our month long hiatus and then we're back in August. Yeah. I feel like, um, yeah, what you said about joy being selfless, I think, I think of as being especially true in cultures and communities where there's more of an emphasis on the collective, which often are minority and, and by communities um and so that's just sort of what I think of that joy is selfless and joy is about the collective especially in communities that prioritize the collective and I think that this is a really cool opportunity to acknowledge like joy as a form of healing and joy as a form of resistance and that I think sometimes the concept of healing and resistance aren't always hand in hand or at least I sometimes think of them as being like opposed to one another, that like healing involves rest and resistance does not. Resistance involves activity. But I wonder if like joy is the link between those two things that um, joy is a form of healing and as a form of resistance. And in that sense, healing and resistance are not as opposed to one another as at least I have this preconceived notion of them being. So I have a lot to think about. I appreciate both of your perspectives as always. And uh, um, yeah, thanks for having this conversation. In collaboration with NAMI Minnesota, the Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board, MYAB, aims to provide education, outreach, and build positive relationships surrounding the topic of mental health and mental illness within Minnesota's multicultural communities. These focus areas include, but are not limited to, bridging the mental health knowledge gap between generations, healing communities through art, self-care during a pandemic, and more. Find the board on Instagram at M-Y-A-B-M-N. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org.